Hello everyone, welcome to the Manacast. Conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours and for the world. My name is Jacob Garrett and with me as always is Jonathan Cornford. G'day folks. Today I'm talking to you from Wurundjeri Land in Melbourne. And I'm speaking to you from Jarjawarung Land in central Victoria in Bendigo. And the Jarjawarung actually are part of the same broader language family as the Wurundjeri people down on the coast. Uh, the language group is sometimes referred to as the Kulin Nations, and they're yeah, so they're virtually Wurundjeri and Jarjawarung are, are virtually dialects of the same broader language family. And down further on the coast uh, from Melbourne is the Shire of Frankston. And today we've got an interview with Claire Harvey, who's a councillor in the Frankston City Council. Tell us a little bit about Claire, John. Uh, Well, Claire is a person who I really uh, like and admire. Um, I got to know Claire through first through the networks of the Surrender Conference. It's a conference about uh, really uh, mission and service uh, uh, amongst the poor. Um, So Claire is someone who's been very much involved and had a passion for social justice uh, and and also uh, the environment and the ecological crisis. She's also served as a, been serving as a member on the board of the Ethos Center for Christian uh, Society and Christianity, which is an evangelical think tank, if you like, for thinking through issues of society, politics, and culture, and that sort of stuff. Claire's also um, written a book with uh, Mick Pope, who is a meteorologist, and together they wrote a book on on climate change called A Climate of Hope: uh, Church and Mission in a Warming World. Uh, which is something I definitely recommend uh, you look up. It's Mick Pope, and it's written under Claire's married name, Claire Dawson. Um, so, yeah, um, you, you get a sense. Claire, so Claire has been really active and passionate about uh, issues of justice and climate change, especially. And in her personal life, that's led her um, for a long period of time in in Frankston to. Uh, to look at trying to do things differently, to live differently, and that led us into trying to start a, a quite a significant co-housing project in uh, Frankston, which is a, basically a different form of housing that uh, takes less resources uh, and is more efficient, more climate-friendly, and more community-based living. Won't say too much more about that. Claire's written about the process of trying to do that in a previous in a, for a Manor Matters article, um, which was October 2020, and uh Matt Anslow and actually I actually did a podcast on that article um back in episode number three of, of Manacast. So if you want to find out about that, uh then you can. So Claire's sort of been involved in uh Manigam stuff um uh a couple of times, but now we get to hear her voice today. Yeah, and I really enjoyed the interview. She's uh very, very thoughtful about a whole range of topics. And because of that, it's important for us to say that the views she expressed aren't and don't in any way represent the views of Frankston City Council. Um, But I really enjoyed the conversation. I think those of you listening will really appreciate quite a lot of her takes and the depth and range of her thinking on all the topics. I particularly enjoyed when we got into the power of teamwork as well as the challenges of teamwork in the political sphere, trying to work with people that you share some vision with, but not a whole vision, 
trying to lead people as well as represent them, not just do what they already want, but try and give them a vision that they then realize they want. Uh, those sort of tensions are really curious to me. She has some interesting thoughts on the current political moment in Australia. Um, quite optimistic, I think, which was encouraging. And it was just in general good to hear from someone who's in it how local council works, because if you're anything like me, you don't really think about the ins and outs of it that often. Mm, yeah, and, and I guess really at the heart of what's going on in this interview is it, it's really all about faith and politics and thinking out Christian faith in the public sphere, what that looks like. And Claire is just a really good example of someone doing that with real integrity and thinking hard. And so I think um, uh, so. most of the things we talk about on the Manicast have political implications in some way or another, uh, some more directly than others. And so I think this is just a really good uh, uh, example of someone trying to work through that s stuff in some very practical ways. And and what I think most people will find uh, good uh, stimulating in this interview is just how broad Claire's political vision is, even though she's working in local politics, she has a very broad political vision. And yet it's very practical as well uh, in how it w works itself out. Um, so we hope you enjoy this interview with Claire Harvey as much as we did. Okay, Claire, well, thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. You're so, very welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah, great to have you here. And you've sort of been... Um, uh, as we mentioned in our introduction, uh, you've been present in different ways in uh, both our previous Manigam podcast and, and article. So great to have your, your voice uh, with us now. So for this episode, we're really interested to hear about your experience um, getting into politics and particularly into local politics. So um, why don't you start by telling us the story of how you ended up getting into local politics, Claire. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I do get that question a bit and did when I was campaigning as well, what, you know, what inspires you to get involved in politics and even that journey of realising it is politics, whereas I guess I saw it as civic leadership, civic engagement, getting involved, uh, would never have actually self-described as a aspirational politician <laughs> at all. Um, that said, I've always been... Uh, curious, I guess, and had an interest in what happens at that local level. I would, um, particularly when I moved to Frankston about 16 years ago, uh, one of the ways to sort of grow in my sense of place was to read the local paper, uh, maybe not the sports pages at the back, uh, but <laughs> most of the other articles just to get to know what's going on and who's who. Um, I knew who uh, my local councillors were and when um, local elections came around, I uh, took an interest, uh, voted with a degree of intention, um, although often that was a case of seeing which of the candidates could string a proper sentence together in terms of just the <laughs> calibre. Um, you know, if they didn't have basic grammar and couldn't use their 250 words, well, um, you know, they were struck down to the bottom of the list. So <laughs> it wasn't always particularly inspiring, and I guess I noted that with a degree of interest and horror. Hmm. Um I guess, too, I noticed maybe more broadly than some others the the broad range of the work of council because of my natural 
curiosity. I know a lot of people would just think rubbish and roads, roads rates rubbish. Um, but it, my interest in the environment, uh, for example, Frankston Council had David Suzuki here back in the day when they made a video recording of that. So that's obviously mm. some time ago. Um, not just waste in terms of rubbish, but recycling, composting, incentivizing people to do better in those spaces uh, and then that era of having young children and finding yourselves at the library for story time uh, at maternal child health center um, wanting to go to the art center for a show so yeah I guess I I was aware that the the reach of councils much more significant than a lot of people give it credit for and then I actually realized that in grade six we had to interview someone I think in terms of their work and I don't know how this happened but I ended up interviewing I think her name was um, Jan Plummer maybe the mayor of Whitehorse at the time and I was in grade six so I look back and go what what triggered that I can't even remember now but there it is um yeah Uh, I had a job working for that council at the Nutterwadding Arts Centre when I was a uni student, I think one of my earlier jobs, uh, actually working in the kiosk. Um, And so I've worked in my very early career as as a council worker in a council facility. Um, And then, of course, the co-housing journey that I went on, which some people might be aware of, but a long journey that's still unfinished, but perhaps coming to an unsatisfactory end. But that meant actually being in the middle of council processes in terms of putting a development application forward for eight smaller living or dwellings uh, or apartments and then sort of more extensive shared space around veggies, orchards, uh, storage, laundry, uh, a a shared tool shop, craft, making space, repair space, that sort of thing. Um, And some of the councillors of that era um, just seemed to lack imagination, Mm. not just in terms of how bad things might get if we don't deal with the various crises we face, uh, but also how differently we might live if we actually applied our ingenuity and creativity and risked a bit. So um, a couple Mm. of the uh, responses I remember were a sort of cynical suggestion that we were actually trying to build rooming houses and um, but do so in a way that we were calling it something else. So actually being quite duplicious and mm. underhanded. Uh, and another councillor uh, questioned how on earth we thought we might force people to share things. And I just thought, wow, like that's how civilizations thrive. Uh, and that's part of, I guess, human progress, surely, that we would learn to share. Um, so this sense that that was in, an impossible ask yeah. uh, of people. Um, and do you feel like some of this stuff, Claire, like it drew you towards the local side of politics more than, I mean, you've said you didn't really want a political career in the first instance, but it seems like a lot of the stuff that you've gravitated towards is at that like grassroots local level where it's like make a change, see the change kind of thing. I guess I'm quite a grounded person, but also very aware of my limitations uh, and my own anxieties, like um, going to Canberra is not practical when you've got young kids and, mm. and there's sort of natural barriers in terms of imposter syndrome. Who am I to do that? Um, <laughs> whether it's qualifications, experience, uh, or not being the right type of person. I know years ago, um, a friend asked if I'd run with the Greens. I think they were trying to get candidates in lots of different seats to try and help them get a Senate 
spot or something like that. And I sort of at the time said, I don't think I'm thick skinned or hard nosed enough. Um, and mm. also wasn't quite ready to burn bridges that would have been inevitable at that time as running with the Greens Party as a Christian. I just knew there'd be friends I would lose without mm. a doubt and doors that would close that might never reopen. So um, mm. really sort of um, <laughs> uh, putting a what? putting a stake in the ground or flying okay. your flag. Putting your flag I wasn't in the quite ground. ready for that. <laughs> so, Claire, that ex- you, you got into that co-housing project, which, I mean, it was expressing a few things one uh, a concern to find a different better way to live you know community living sharing goods but also largely tied into your um your real passion around doing something around climate change and then the ecological crisis mm. um what so was your experience of the difficulty in getting that uh, project up with council and really encountering systemic blockages to good ideas um and new things was that like a key point, turning point for you in in terms of thinking about um, getting into local politics? Uh, it probably didn't happen at the time. At the time, it was just frustration and exhaustion, and it it wasn't council itself either. In that the planners worked with us mm. and recommend their recommendation was that councillors approve it. But councillors listened to some neighbours who had issues with neighbourhood character, visual bulk. They decided to be suspicious about our intentions and whether or not we were, again, trying to, in an underhanded kind of way, establish a place of worship or whether we might be a global cult. Um, you know, all sorts of uh, deeply so, suspicious responses. So the problems were, were more cultural than structural. I think so. Um, and That's so interesting. This is one of the problems at a local government level as well, that we then knew we had the right to appeal to VCAT, which we did. So councillors can be lobbied by the community and make a decision that is way out of line with planning provisions and planning guidelines, and they are the planning authority, but the right of appeal means that you, you know, as a developer can just go to VCAT and say we meet all the requirements, this should be approved, and you get it approved. So you sort of wonder what that local government <laughs> process is all about. But it does in, enable community members to actually sort of step forward and say, I've got concerns and the ideal outcome, and this is what I do spend some time now mm. talking to residents about, um, it might not that be, you, be that you get the development stopped, but more that you can work with the developer and council to be heard and say, it's important to us that these trees are retained or that uh, we don't have overshadowing or we do want to draw attention to the fact that there's already issues with parking and we we are concerned about how that might impact our street. Mm. So it's more an opportunity for residents to voice concerns for an optimal outcome mm. for all parties rather than we just want to see this stopped. And I think too often residents see that as their opportunity to try and stop a development rather than to work collaboratively towards better outcomes. Mm, okay. In the end, it was a friend, I think it must have been between lockdowns, uh, was it? Uh, I can't even remember when, but at the end of a dinner out with a friend, uh, she said, now I've got something very important to ask you, Claire. And she looked me in the eye and said, I want to encourage you to run for uh, local council in the 2020 elections. And, I, you know, I trust her and she knows me. And we had a talk around um, what she saw as my sort of strengths in governance, but also my interest in local issues through housing and other things. Um, 
And I sort of took it on board, but then had a week where I don't think we managed to get out the door in the morning without someone being in tears. Just And I went, as a single parent, who am I kidding? This is not um, for me. I'm not in a life space where I could make that work. I do remember having a chat to Peter Murphy sometime later. I think it was around the time of uh, one lock, uh, lockdowns and climate and coronavirus and this need to bring manufacturing back on shore and the opportunity to innovate and to revitalise our manufacturing sector with advanced manufacturing and automation. And I emailed her about that. I think having listened to a podcast on economics and the need to be politically brave or bold and I emailed her and she called me back so I had a chat with my federal MP and mentioned my interest in local government and um and my concerns as a single parent whether or not it was really realistic for me and she said oh look I'd encourage you to give it a go because you'd probably do a much better job than some of the people we currently have on council Mm. without mentioning names so that that was (laughs) encouraging Uh, And I did go back to my friend and say, I think maybe 2024 is more realistic. My kids will both be in secondary school, um, just to be honest. And she said, you probably don't want to hear this, but I really think it needs to be 2020. And it was a really interesting season in which to campaign because we did go back into lockdown. Um, But I wonder on some occasions whether that actually suited me as someone who doesn't actually like to draw attention to myself. I realised quite quickly that's hard Mm. uh, for someone to campaign who doesn't want attention because campaigning is all about Mm. getting attention and getting more attention than the next person, which, again, that's where I sort of think it is a bit broken because it appeals to um, egotists and narcissists and megalomaniacs quite naturally who tend to do better at these things Mm. um, because they love the attention and they're good at getting it. But because we're in lockdown, there was no sort of town hall meetings. There was no standing on station platforms handing out of flyers. There wasn't even letterbox dropping to a significant extent unless it was within your 5Ks. So uh, unless you had the money to pay some other group to do it or lots of friends all over town who were willing to do that for you. So Mm. uh, I think, too, Frankston's reputation was not great um, in terms of having a monitor Uh, appointed to our council. There were meetings where the police were called in, there was a councillor suspended, uh, and there was a deep sense from a number of people that as a city we deserved a lot better. Um, And so there was that sense of it doesn't guarantee I'll get in, but I'll throw my hat in the ring and see how it goes. These were historic problems with with your local government in Frankston that, that, uh, that you've been having including the previous, so the council previous to the one I've been on. And so there was a sense of this is disappointing. Like these are our leaders and they can't, um, Mm. They can't engage in civil conduct and they can't behave themselves. So mm. that's, that's not a great look for a city that already has some reputational issues to overcome. So were you surprised when you ended up getting enough votes to get into council? I, I was. I'd sort of, um, some people would say I shot myself in the foot in that they said, I'm not seeing signs around, you know, how are people going to know to vote for you or can I help with letterbox dropping? And I said, well, um passionately anti-waste and most of this stuff ends up just being waste Mm. the flyers that go straight into the recycling all these plastic core fleet signs like what do you do with them um and i watched some other women campaign through a sort of supportive closed facebook group and some of these women their signs were defaced in the most disgusting of ways shall we say and i was Mm. glad to not have to deal with that side of the stress Mm. 
um, to go people have drawn unsavory things on my face you know this this is part of campaigning and that's exactly the sort of stuff that would have put me right off so uh, I it was a leap of faith to sort of say this is me I can only be me because if there's no residence resonance within the community that I'm the kind of people that a person they want to represent them um, that I don't want to be their representative because I'm not I, I want to be consultative and I want to listen but ultimately I've got some fairly strong values and if I'm not the pick of the people, then they should choose someone else. Wow. It's almost like dating advice that you hear is this, the classic, just be yourself because you're only going to be able to be that long-term anyway. Right. Uh, start in the way that you intend to go or yeah. whatever. So that was a big risk in a way, but I also maybe hoped that there were people that were tired of the way that the game gets played and looking mm. for something new and different, which I guess we've seen more recently, but we can come back to the federal yeah. election down the track. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it certainly sounds a rare approach to to politics, Claire. And well, well, following on from that, that, that statement, you'd said earlier on that you had originally thought about council as civic leadership, but uh, have come to understand it as politics. Um, so has that been a barrier coming to, to think about it as politics? And how does that, how is that um, gelled or fit in with your your Christian faith and how you think about politics from from that perspective. Um, it's it's an interesting one. I um, I do think the the gospel, the Christian faith, has fairly profound political implications. Uh, I'm increasingly not a fan of privatized faith, particularly the type that gets uh, put in a fairly small box with a, an almost exclusive focus on private morality. Um, I think we know what some of those key litmus test issues have become, particularly around same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction, that sort of thing. Um, equally, I'm not in the public square as an outspoken Christian, but rather someone, I guess, who is there as a citizen but motivated uh, by a call to love and serve. I guess as an extension of that, to seek the welfare of the city in which I live, to draw upon that sort of image from Jeremiah 29. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm weary personally, but also wary about what this means in terms of the reputation of the church for this sort of moralistic tone that I think mm. evangelicals in particular are, are increasingly yeah. known for. Mm. Um, I prefer to lead with compassion and mercy and integrity. Um, and if people want to ask what my deeper values are, or if they are attentive, they'll probably figure out figure that out in time. Mm. Um, but I guess I don't lead with that sense of I'm here as a Christian. And that's that's been interesting. When I was campaigning, there were groups lobbying us, wanting to know what our position was on certain issues, and they were going to give us ticks or crosses. Yes. Um, and the the Pride Lobby, the Alliance for Gambling Reform, uh, even um, Julian Assange, you know, and oh, our views yeah. on him. Wow. Like, so wow. there, was, <laughs> there was an interesting array of lobby groups contacting all candidates and saying, what's your stance? What's your position? Because we're going to publicly declare you as uh, having our support or not. Mm. So that was very interesting, knowing that once these commitments and statements are out there, they will hang around for a long time. Even if we shift personally in our views, it can take a long time for these things to disappear from the, the cache in the internet memory. How do you go about approaching some of those things, like the the 
potential to have to compromise in order to kind of make it work, the more like utilitarian side that politics can have while trying to be a person of integrity, you know, when the gambling lobby approaches you or whatever. Yeah, I, I think gambling causes devastating harm in communities. And that's that was one of those easy ones to mm. say, if if my commitment to support a cause like that is enough to put people off, then I'm probably not the best person to represent them. Mm. So sometimes it's actually quite straightforward and it can sort of help you uh, define some of the boundaries around what you do and don't stand for. Uh, and probably the campaign season is when people have most interest in that sort of thing so it's an interesting conundrum uh, I guess I sort of saw yeah I could contribute on council but I I don't think I recognized how difficult I would find the campaigning process particularly mm. as an introvert and an anti-performer and as I said someone who actually prefers to avoid unnecessary attention <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess also the, the the difficulty of navigating how uh, what you say and in public forums, public messaging, how that can easily be awareness of how that can be taken and treated in so many different ways you don't intend in public forums these days. I I have been outspoken on climate change and some justice issues or willing to sort of put out there to the world what I believe, but I have been very quiet on issues of same-sex attraction, gender sexuality and abortion because very rarely is there sufficient attention to the complexity and nuance. So I sort of don't want to be quoted on any position because there's such a risk that someone will misquote, misconstrue, twist, Mm. misinterpret. Mm. So, yeah, there's some issues I've been intentionally quiet on because I just don't think they're ever handled. Well, they're so rarely handled well and with Mm. sophistication and Mm. pastoral sensitivity. So, Claire, for a lot of people, they would, um, well, for some people, sorry, they they would think about politics as, um, I don't know, a a, a basically corrupt game, you know, and or corrupt or corrupting game. Uh, And and so it's sort of um, to get, it's sort of a, a, a tainted feel to get involved with. How, how have you thought about that side of politics? And uh, one, do do you see some truth in that, or or have you, you, your your experience been that that's not really the case at all? I like your phrase "corrupting" because I think it it gives lots of room to that. I think truth that most people go into politics with the best of intentions. Mm. Um, I can see how people can become corrupted uh, by it when ambition takes over, personal ambition, and it becomes then a means to an end, whether it's political gain to get more power or um, privilege or financial gain when you see opportunities. So those temptations, I'm sure, are always there in big and small ways. And I probably get more traffic in my newsfeed about what's happening in local government because we get local government news. Um, but uh, New South Wales councillors being charged because they were receiving bribes mm. um, by Chinese developers. Uh, there's a mayor who was more than three times over the limit that left, this is in Queensland, left their sort of little after party having approved the annual budget and smashed her car into a tree. The issue there is that just hours before she was supporting a grieving family who'd lost their daughter to a, dr- a drunk driver. Mm. 
Um, so pressure for her to stand down and then realising that actually because she's democratically elected, there, there aren't the right mechanisms. So if she was, if this was a governance board, <laughs> there would yes. be so much pressure and she would be gone already. Yes, um, It's different in local government. It's a mm. really diff- difficult and um, more com- complex game. Uh, but, yeah. I, yeah, I certainly can see how people start with great motives and want to bring about change and mm. then increasingly sort of see avenues and opportunities for personal gain. Um, And there's an aspect too where it is community service and some of it is hard work and you have weeks where it does seem unfair and you can see that natural human inclination to make things fair. I forget what that theory is called, but happens in organisations that we we almost make sure that our remuneration is fair. So if you think you're overpaid, you work extra hard and you, you give way above and beyond those who think they're underpaid they're the ones that steal stationery from the you know from the Mm. admin office because it's their own way of of making sure or take extra long lunch breaks so that's part of human nature is to make things feel fair and that's that's one of the integrity challenges of local government there are plenty of councillors who will do it on top of full-time work and do almost as little as they can get away with and Mm. in that sense it's it's almost corrupt uh, in terms of taking taking this allowance and doing very little and not representing people, not returning calls, not representing, you know, not um, replying to emails in this sense that they're they're no help, they're no good, mm. no one no one gets back to me. Um, but for those who are really engaged, um, and particularly for those who um, might struggle to make that work, so in terms of equity, if someone's juggling other things. Um, So, I mean, I guess I'm a classic example of a a single parent who um, needs to make life work. Mm. It can become quite undemocratic in that the people that can afford to do it, the people that have uh, generous incomes, supportive spouses, or their retirees at the other end, Mm. and they're able to do that. So the allowance itself is a really interesting sort of equity tool, and I don't know that it always works well. Mm. To, to put that a similar sort of question a different way, that, that there's the old um, debate between social activists and people interested in social change about whether it's better to seek change um, from inside the system or to be outside the system pushing for change, yeah, you know, that old debate. Um, mm. So, uh, I mean, you've sort of been in now, you, you've gone from both those sides um what's your reflections on on that whole debate around change and being in the system and outside the system I think we need people everywhere (laughs) as a sort of first point I reflect on that even in terms of myself but even if I were to in another season of life end up outside the system I think what's wonderful about even a four-year term on council is I have got a much better sense of how the system works on the inside Mm. um where what the levers are where the levers are um, who who are the people of influence, uh, how to bring change. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily either or. Some of mm. that's our temperament. Yes. Um, how, how much colouring outside the lines we want to do. Mm. I, I know there's a local guy that's quite involved. He interviewed a lot of candidates um, but said I, I couldn't be on council because there's a code of conduct and I, I want to be able to say exactly as I please, what I please when when I like in whatever way I feel is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's those people that want to maintain, I guess, those those freedoms and those mm. liberties. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
I guess like on the more positive side, Claire, we've talked about making change from within the system. We've talked about corruption. When you go about making moves, obviously that's with other people and it's only you're only going to be able to move in as a team as far as you kind of have that overlap with the vision. Um, how do you go sharing partial overlap with people trying to work for some initiative or change and then also where the overlap ends how to manage that kind of teamwork aspect so as a group of counselors yeah or even with with local groups you know we've talked about these people are pushing for this and it might overlap with something that you're trying to do or that you're for but you don't fully align with their views on everything that kind of thing yeah, even within within council itself, it's a really interesting tension because at one level we're a governance board. Um, I think in Frankston it's about $2.8 billion of assets under management once you add in facilities and roads and drains and infrastructure and all sorts of things. Um, I think 90-plus $90, $90 million of capital works, which is the biggest budget ever. Um, so boards, like you generally work together, have a strategy, be in alignment with your strategic plan and, and aim for optimal outcomes for your community. But the political sort of system or lens that some people have is this one that's highly adversarial, mm. my party versus your party, and we fight to get what we want. Um, so there's this underlying tension that I don't think's um, been properly resolved and may never be resolved without significant reform in terms of local government. I know there's uh, increasing desire that councillors and councils listen and consult, and that's embedded within the new Local Government Act, this expectation that there is rigorous consultation with the community, that things are done for people, not to people. Um, that's hard, though, because there is a sense we've even got some councils say we're here to represent the people and do what they want. But sometimes the community is deeply divided. So yes, we've got some yes. big issues coming up yeah. very soon yeah. around development on the foreshore between Nepean Highway and Cannonook Creek. Um, it's very ecologically sensitive. Yeah, a, a classic example is exactly that. We mm. want our city to grow. We want it developed. We want it revitalised. But equally, we want our natural assets protected. And I suppose one of the challenges of being a representative but also a leader is leading people who you're representing towards something that you see as good but also convincing them to see it as good also. Like there's kind of a tension between doing what they want but if you can see a better option that they haven't seen leading them to that instead of kind of just doing at the at the minimum what what the majority says or what they say they want that um that's a really key piece i think of things for me and it was during the campaign period that that te- that temptation to just tell people what they want to hear rather than to be true to who i am and they either like me and vote for me or don't which again was a sort of leap of faith, but knowing that I'm essentially a values-driven person that doesn't want to be co-opted or manipulated mm. or at key times would refuse um, to the frustration of some people. But, yeah, Frankston is in a really unique place in that uh, it used to be a sleepy seaside town where Melbourne folk would come for holidays. I mean, obviously further down the peninsula as well, but um um, we've had our share of reputational issues, as I alluded to before. I think some of them relate to being sort of one of those end-of-the-line suburbs. I mm. used to live in Ringwood East and study in Lilydale, and there's that similar feel of being at the end of the train line, um, a close 
proximity or clusters of methadone clinics, things like that, or mm. people that gather there on their way to somewhere else or on their way through. Um, and also resources in terms of people trying to get to and from hospitals or TAFE or um, those sorts of, it's, it's sort of a transit spot. Um, mm. Mm. But juxtaposed against that is these is the natural beauty um, of being near the beach. Uh, so many people seem to have a connection or point of connection with Frankston. Lots of people seem to move to the city to study work. But when it comes to raising a family, they want to move back because they actually have such pleasant memories of their own childhood. Um, you know, we think traffic's bad here and then we go to the eastern suburbs or into the city and go, oh, my goodness, we've forgotten, you know. Yeah. Um, and we've also been designated more recently as a metropolitan activity centre by the state government. So you look at the the sheer scale of development in places like Dandenong, Box Hill, Ringwood, Footscray, and we've got a lot of catching up to do. But, again, there's going to be a lot of um, conflict uh, and tension around how do we grow and develop and have those kind of resources and protect our environment. And, again, that's where I'm going to feel wedged and cornered um, mm. quite often, particularly with a whole lot of environmental groups who will say to me, we voted to put you there so that you can support us at a, at a time like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and the tension the tension of trying to unite a bunch of somewhat disparate people toward a vision that is not just workable but potentially inspiring rather than just the lowest common denominator. And this, this sense of um, we're a city but we're not, like there's this outer suburban, slightly seaside-ish mentality, but yet we are a city and we've recently won the award for the best street art tour. That's a national award and we were bronze in the state tourism awards after Bendigo and then Sorrento. So those things are wonderful and tourism's great. Um, bringing people in will help our city recover from particularly some difficult COVID years, but we already had a city centre that in some places looked like it was um, dying, if not dead. Um, but, uh, you know, tourism's great. I get more excited about things like waste and the circular economy, mm. active transport, improved shared user paths, less car dependence, increasing our urban tree canopy, supporting social enterprises. We've got a new hub based at Chisholm TAFE, which is in partnership with the state government and Peninsula Health in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, I love all that, but it's sort of inner city thinking in the outer suburbs. And mm. it, that's where, as you said, Jacob, it does bring that call for, lead, that demand for leadership to inspire people to ideas that hadn't crossed their mind yet. Yeah, to try and help them see what's good, not just what they already see, not drag them to it, but to sort of convince and woo them to it and that I guess what I call future fit development um, there is still this talk of what we need is more parking we need multi-level car parking at our stations but we also need more parking everywhere else and meanwhile I'm going I hope in 15 20 years we won't need nearly as much parking because we will have moved on from privately owned vehicles whether they're combustion engines or electric I don't think we can afford to all go out and buy electric cars 
from mm. an environmental perspective. Like that's hugely costly in terms of the demand on resources, the embodied energy, and it still doesn't solve issues with roads and congestion. So we need to wean people off cars. And so it seems ridiculous to me to invest more and more money in multi-level car parks when that's actually not the longer term direction in what in which we need to head except that's what everyone's asking for right now yeah and so balancing that sort of demand and the need to be able to do anything requires being voted in with a vision that potentially isn't what people realize that they want or maybe don't want at all that's like such a challenge in my head (laughs) I don't know how you manage it Well, and this is where local government's great in terms of being on the ground, closest level to the people, but um, at at key times, collaboration is going to be very important. So I'm involved with SECA, which is the South East Council's Climate Change Alliance. I'm the Mm. council delegate. So that's nine councils from Port Phillip all the way through to Bass Coast and sort of going as far north as Dandenong. And we're able to collaborate on key initiatives because it makes no sense for us to all be doing very similar things Mm. out of a very um, shared set of values um, and yet reinventing the wheel or duplicating resources. So that's one example. Breaking news, I think it's today actually, 24 member councils um, of a group called CASB. So this is the Centre for the Sustainable Built Environment. Um, Those 24 councils represent um, more than half of Victoria's population. Um, we've lodged a planning scheme amendment with the new Minister for Planning uh, and it's to do with um, being much more environmentally sustainable in terms of design principles and Mm. planning. So net zero emissions, reducing household builds, healthier, more comfortable living environments for people, also being more resilient to climate impacts. Um, as well as protecting our water resources and enhancing biodiversity. You can see if one council tried to take the lead on that, it would just flag to developers that development is going to be much more difficult and much more expensive, and they're just Mm. developing the other local government areas that hadn't gone that way yet. Mm. So the fact that 24 councils have actually collaborated and put this planning scheme amendment forward together Mm. just sends such a really strong signal. And you've brought together all this shared expertise, again, Mm. rather than getting each council to do it uh, on their own. Mm. So there's crucial issues like that where we can achieve big wins by working together. Yeah, I think that's a key insight. So, I mean, I think what most people listening to this, Claire, will, will be realizing is that you're a person with a much bigger political vision than than most people on council I would say or many people on councils at, at in local politics you've also um, the other thing you've you've really tapped into I mean which I, I I love um because um I think a lot about that the big history of of uh particularly um of the west and the, uh and the trajectory of liberal democracy and you've you've just tapped into a microcosm and some of the the tensions unresolved tensions in our whole political system in the west and and between the tensions between deliberative government representative government and mass democracy Mm. um things which were still really you know uh problems that are writ large in the in our our country and and nearly all the, the the western democracies that we see at the moment so uh, taking that in, in mind that you've you've sort of seen those things both in a microcosm but you're thinking big as well you're looking local but you're clearly thinking much more broadly than that how would you Claire what, what's 
and as someone you're close to closer to politics and things that are going on than, than most people what what's your reading of our current political moment in Australia in 2022? Reflecting at that higher level in terms of Australia, particularly uh, our elections that we had, um, I think what I sense is optimism. Um, I think we're realising now that we've actually carried heaviness and despondency, exasperation, despair, could even push that tippet over into hopelessness just in terms of not having a deep sense that our, our own government is for, for us, mm. for the people. Um, and I think it's only after that election result that some of us went, wow, I feel lighter. Mm-hmm. I, I feel a, an air of optimism and hope and I feel relief. And I don't think we realised what we mm. were kind of carrying collectively and individually the sort of weight on our shoulders or the sense of we were going to keep pushing and fighting but it had a degree of futility to it that maybe we hadn't named so I think we've turned a corner there and I'm hoping that people have already um, started articulating this but I'm hoping it continues into the the state election and the next federal election this sense of empowerment and agency that with the right resources and focus focus and effort and scale, uh, we can actually affect change, even in places like Canberra. Mm. Uh, so yeah, think- I'm hoping that we, it'll weaken this two-party system too that we've just grown accustomed to as our normal because I don't think it has to be like that. But even that's a bit of a revelation to some of us. There are different mm. ways to do democracy. I think it's mm. exciting. Yeah, so you're referring to the number of independents that got involved in the recent federal election. Yeah. Um, so uh, do, do you think um, that anything much has changed in relation to the growing political polarisation and culture wars that we've seen of recent years? Uh, um, I, I still think we are pretty bad at sophisticated, civilised, nuanced debate. Mm. I don't think social media has helped at all with that. Mm. Um, and then there are encouraging things like the other day I tuned into a webinar with one of my favourite Australian economists, Richard Dennis, with mm. Joseph Stiglitz, and um, it was great to just know hear them say there were 2,000 people on the webinar. Mm. Wow. And I'm like, yay, even to know that there are 2,000 people that want to engage, that want to think about whether or not GDP is the best measure of thriving and progress and well-being, and we know it's not, but now we actually have a federal treasurer who's come out and named that as well and says he wants to work with other countries like New Zealand that have been actively thinking about these things for some time. I think that's exciting, Mm. Um, and that's where I need to remind myself often that we're not talking about 80% 80% or even 50, 50% of the population changing. I think they say sometimes it's closer to 15% to actually bring change in terms mm. of uh, the thinking, the discourse, the openness to new ideas. And I, um, yeah, I do think that there, I see that we're in this sort of turbulent season of cross currents where there's the the old way mm. of doing things, doing business, doing politics, uh, doing life and um, and then there's the the newer way that's emerging and there are significant signs of life but there's inevitable tension. Look, um, let, look we, we we need to start wrapping this up, but let's we do. Let's, 
use that as a segue to um, if you can just very quickly now we've, you made the transition clear from local politics to you pick it you may be clear for PM or clear for state premier <laughs> or maybe it's just another term in local politics but um you know the world is your oyster what are the two or three policies that you would like to to plump for now to to really see get up and um, you can pick the level of government that you that you aim for uh uh, in my local, so at a really practical level, there's there's the housing piece. Um, I'm hoping something will come out of the ashes of our co-housing development. We'll see. But um, Frankston's in the process of putting together a, a housing committee that would be a sort of formal committee with its own terms of reference. Um, so I, I want to move forward with uh, providing more diversity in our housing stock. We've got a massive shortage of crisis accommodation here. Yep. The peninsula is has already declared as a shire, so our neighbouring shire, Mornington Peninsula, they've declared a housing emergency. Um, what's happened with prices and rentals is extraordinary as a as the fallout of COVID. So, mm. and and I think for the first time that I noticed it, housing really was an election issue. Again, it might be that I'm paying more attention and listening more attentively, but. Um, I think there are lots of people that are ready to say our housing is in crisis and we say it's a fundamental human right, but it really doesn't seem like that. Okay. Um, so housing reform is top of the list? Yes. Okay. Um, even in Frankston, for example, a real lack of um, one or two bedroom uh, sort of apartments that need to be higher density because we can't afford more urban sprawl. Um, I think about a quarter of the people in Frankston, this sort of mirrors the trends around the country, are single occupant households, and yes. yet most of our housing stock would be three bedrooms and above, most, as in the majority, mm. not all. Yeah. Um, so if people are living on their own, but in big homes, it makes no sense financially and certainly makes no sense environmentally. Um, so housing's one. I, I used to think that I was sort of planning for my next car to be an electric vehicle, but I really want my next car to be no car at all. <laughs> um, but I need to make that work with kids who need to get around and the kind of infrastructure we've got. Yeah, we need better shared user paths. We need to feel more safe on the street, whether we're walking or riding our bikes and regardless of what time of day it is. Um, and I want to see more ride share, car share, Mm. Um, services and I want to live and plan with an awareness that I'm fairly sure we'll have autonomous self-driving vehicles down the track where they will pick us up drop us off and then go and charge somewhere and they will be very well utilized whereas I think most vehicles spend 90 to 95 percent of their life sitting still doing nothing parked somewhere mm -hmm. and that's not an efficient use of resources either so that's that shift towards a sharing economy where we don't possess nearly as much, but we access usage when we need it. Mm. And therefore the responsibility for ensuring this product has a long life uh, remains with the producer or the, the, the business owner. So it incentivizes a shift towards very well-made products that are easy to repair rather than built in obsolescence and redundancy. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that I think France already has laws around a right to repair so that products can be disassembled, parts can be replaced, and that's your right because that's what the environmental crisis demands. So, so Claire Harvey for 
uh, for either next council sounds like and maybe state government is housing crisis <laughs> and uh, transport reform. Um, I, I like it, Claire. I've, I've 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 loved you listening to your political vision. It's been it, I find it extraordinary how much stuff you seem to have di- seem to be able to digest, both in terms of both not just news, but actually understanding issues and and understanding long term issues and trends. It's amazing. And to synthesize those things as well. Yeah, I think vocationally, that's where I've finally just uh, decided to accept that I'm a bit of a generalist, which has Mm. been a point of frustration to me. I've applied for jobs in the past where I've been told I'm underqualified because I'm not specialist enough. I don't have Mm. a PhD or I haven't worked sufficiently in that industry or in that role. Um, And then other times I've been told I'm overqualified because I bring other skill sets that aren't really required in the role. So that's been frustrating to go, how is it that (laughs) I can't get work? And the good thing about local government is that you actually are talking about waste one minute, maternal child health, the next um, parks, recreations, reserves, active ageing, and then roads and drainage, and then emergency management and climate resilience. So There is that sense that those portable multidisciplinary skills actually come in really handy. Um, It just doesn't pay quite enough for me to make that my full-time gig. So we'll see what I do to hack that kind of food on the table uh, problem. Being being an expert generalist has really come to the fore here, Claire. So um, people will have enjoyed that. But I think uh, probably for me, as much as anything, it's really just been appreciating your your personal integrity. And that uh, I... I knew that coming into it, which was one of the reasons I was wanting, were keen to to talk to you. But, but I think that's just so encouraging to hear the the ways in which you've thought about your moves and and getting into politics and how you do it. Um, very encouraging, Claire. I hope you are encouraged and um, you take encouragement from the whatever the next steps will be for you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think um, I would be good to write the textbook because I'm not sure that my approach would work for everyone. But but I think there maybe it does symbolise in a hopeful kind of way that there's an appetite for a different way of engaging in the world of politics. Maybe the world is looking or Australians are looking for people who aren't career politicians to bring a refreshing uh, point of difference into the way things are done. Mm. Well, on that very hopeful note, um, we'll say a big thank you to you, Claire Harvey, for joining us on the Manacast. Thank you both. Appreciated the time. Hey, everyone. Jacob again. Just quickly, thanks for listening to the interview. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, why not send it to a friend? Also, if you enjoy this podcast and you want it to get noticed, please consider reviewing us on iTunes or whatever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really does make a difference. In the meantime, if you want more good news economics, check out Matter Matters, the quarterly publication of Mattergum. That's available online for free at mattergum.org.au. Thanks. Thanks.